Hi, I'm Alex Bellinger, and this is Small Biz Pod on Friday, the 28th of November. Well, innovation is the subject of today's podcast. And a tremendous podcast it is too. I was very lucky to be invited to attend the Economist Innovation Summit in London not so long ago. And I grabbed three terrific interviews. One with uh, the chief executive of an amazing Israeli startup. The second with a chief creatologist from one of America's most innovative and biggest corporations. And also an interesting insight into this state of innovation in India from uh, a well-known and well-respected Indian VC. A must-listen-to podcast, this one, so if you have any kind of curiosity or any kind of passion for your startup, for ideas or for business, you must listen to this one. And that's what Small Biz Pod's about. It's, it's, it's about facts and figures sometimes, or rarely, actually. It's more about innovation, excitement, curiosity and inspiration, so... Tell your friends, and uh, if you're not subscribed to Small Biz Pod on iTunes, that's probably the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just go to iTunes, Apple's iTunes Store, and subscribe, or just go to smallbizpod.co.uk and click on the little iTunes icon there. So there we are, great show coming up. I we've also got another listener book review for which I'm really, really thankful. Uh, thanks to John Peden for that. A great. A review of a book coming up at the end of the podcast and I also uh, address one or two uh, questions one question in particular from Ed Stivala a very uh, long-standing listener about the recent uh, pre-budget report in the UK and, and one particular element that impacts family businesses uh, and I'll just do a quick roundup of some other comments that have come in over the last couple of weeks now, before we go to those great interviews on innovation, let's hear from our sponsors and in particular a short, snappy two-minute interview on importing and exporting. If you're a business looking to do that, then you want to listen to this next segment. And now for our sponsor section where Eva Renier from a Spanish manufacturing company talks about how her business has been able to break into export markets internationally. My name is Eva Reñé and in the company is Libo, L-E-B-O from, uh, from Spain of course and uh, we manufacture car care products and air fresheners. We are manufacturing that for more than 30 years so in Spain we are a leader company and we, we try to export uh, around uh, eight uh, years ago. We tried to, to open markets to export. At the beginning the company didn't spend much money to, to travel, to trade shows and we found Alibaba was a very, very good uh, source to, to connect around the world in a, in a cheaper way and contacts have been uh, serious contacts and uh, in fact at the moment we have uh, customers that have come from Alibaba. Our main market is Europe and South America and also North of Africa. In some countries of Europe in spite of crisis they are uh, asking a lot of products, paying in advance, 
so it's the the advantage of export because maybe some area is a very difficult economy at the moment, but other areas, other countries have a a good uh, economy at the moment, I think, at least in, in that area because <laughs> sometimes uh, uh, there are surprises. You, you expect a crisis and they pay in advance and ask a very big order. So I I always say that internet is like a discover of fire. It, it has changed the world. Uh, the communication uh, it uh, is in that way is, is quick and safe, and then you can make business uh, faster than before. I can't imagine how to export without internet. So there we are. Edited highlights of my interview with Eva. There. Do check it out. I'll put uh, more details on the homepage at smallbizpod.co.uk for uh, further insight into how a small Spanish manufacturing company is successfully exporting around the globe. Do also check out alibaba.com. Go to the homepage, smallbizpod.co.uk, click on the banner there and explore the site. It's a fascinating site, lots of products, services, a community there. If you're thinking of exporting or importing, it's certainly a fantastic place to start. So there we are. Thanks to Alibaba.com for sponsoring Small Biz Pod. But now let's go straight to those interviews which I did at the Economist Innovation Summit. And I talked to three remarkable people there on the subject of innovation in the hotel lobby. So if you hear a few clinking glasses and china and a little bit of moody piano music in the background, that's why. Hi, I'm Ori Gall, CEO of uh, New Lens. We are a company developing an accommodating intraocular lens for the treatment of presbyopia and cataract and improving the lives of those who suffer from low vision. And uh, before we go on, intraocular lens for listeners, how does that work? Well, uh, the most common surgical procedure in medicine today is actually known as cataract surgery, and that's a procedure where the natural lens is removed through a, uh, a surgical procedure and a, uh, a IOL or intraocular lens is implanted. Today, intraocular lenses are, are basically one focal point uh, in the distance. When you go to the doctor, they'll ask you, do you want to see near, far, or intermediately, and everything else you need to have spectacle correction for, and that's basically what an intraocular lens is. And about 15 million of these devices are implanted annually around the world. So your innovation is to to provide a, 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 that, that full range of perspective within one lens? Correct. Uh, um, our, our specific innovation is, is not only restoring the basic function of clarity of vision, which is what the function of an IOL does today, but actually restoring the actual function of the, of the mm. natural lens being accommodation or the ability to see at all distances without external correction. Um, I like to term it as uh, the, the natural innovation, natural development of any kind of medical device. If we look back to prosthetics, you know, pirates used yeah. to have a wooden leg, and today they have yeah. feet that they can run in the Olympics with. So yeah. any 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 medical technology that is developed to replace an organ in the body is first first designed to replace the basic function, and then essentially trying to evolve into a full replacement. And you can look across the spectrum of medical technologies in that area. So in ophthalmology, that's what we're doing. Now, um, New Lens is, is based in Israel, and Israel is, is, is rapidly becoming kind of a, a Silicon Valley. Um, there's a lot of innovation happening um, in all sorts of technologies and on the web um, in Israel at the moment. How did you start a business based on one innovative idea? What, what are the challenges? 
Well, the, the idea itself came from a physician who I was introduced to during uh, my previous tenure at another company. Um, and the challenge was, I don't think it's a challenge, I think it's the basic guide. If you're, you're going to use limited funds and limited resources, you want to try and make sure that you're going to spend them on a, on a, on a worthy, worthy uh, innovation, if you will, or worthy development. And um, the challenges there are understanding that you kind of have all, all your eggs in one basket. Mm. You have one egg and one basket and a very thin string to, to carry you through and slowly you, you start weaving the infrastructure around that egg. Um, at Newlands we were fortunate enough to, to see that while we started this company with a basic technology for cataract surgery during the R&D process and some of our clinical processes, we saw that with very simple modifications to the design, uh, um, using the same fundamental R&D, we were able to treat additional markets. So today, our, our market potential went from not only being just a cataract market, but also treat presbyopia, which is basically the, the fundamentally uh, a fundamental occurrence of reading glasses, that, which affects everyone over age 40. Um, we've seen in our clinical studies that we were able to improve the lives of patients suffering from age-related macular degeneration and other low vision impairments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by essentially giving them an implantable on-demand low vision aid, so re removing the entire uh, need for external low vision aids, which are cumbersome and socially embarrassing. And uh, furthermore, uh, beyond the cataract, we are now also discovering that we may be potentially capable of restoring accommodation to patients who already had cataract surgery and have an existing traditional IOL implanted. So you start focused on one product and you can't ignore the other potentials, yeah. Yeah. but you try and focus your resources as, as well as you can because they're limited. Is innovation always about disruption? Because arguably <laughs> there's going to be a lot of unhappy um, contact lens manufacturers <laughs> as a result of your invention. Well, uh, you know, the society evolves and yeah. products evolve and, and you know, um, I think that it's not my, my job to make sure that the contact lens manufacturers are aware of what's coming. I'm sure that they know what's coming and they need to act on it. But history is full of opportunities missed by existing, you know, 400-pound mm. gorillas in marketplaces. Mm. Um, so that that's the one thing. To your question on, on innovation being disruptive internally, um, I can tell you that what I found is in a startup and having a, a, a good separation between the technology idea being uh, the, the, the co-founder or who was the physician who invented the technology mm. and myself being the business guy, mm. um, the ability to create a sound basic infrastructure that is very, not rigid, but very well well managed or well organized to support the craziness and the ideas mm. that flow from an innovator because mm. innovators are not people who sit down and are very organized. They're actually yeah, yeah. people go you know, fly by the seat of their pants. Yeah. So the biggest challenge that I had was creating an infrastructure for innovation, if you will, making sure that there's a platform to, yeah. to, to, to deliver the ideas from yeah. you know, paper to, to actual product. Yeah. And that's been the biggest you know, fundamental challenge of a startup. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of the ultimate teamwork, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's, it's, it's a teamwork and it's, 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 uh, it, it's a process and it's understanding that beyond, behind the, the, the most creative developments in, in, in our, at least in our world, which is medical technology, there is actually a very old school infrastructure yeah. and processes. Yeah. And that's what gets you through the, through, the, through the round. So, Okay, one final question in relation to the thorny issue of um, intellectual property and patents. Yep. I, I suppose m for most people, the, the, the understanding of patents is, is around you know, the drugs companies who have mm -hmm. to invest in massive amounts of money, capital expenditure, for something which actually has a relatively short lifespan. How does 
that affect a startup in this type of space? Well, it's interesting you, you hit on the, on the subject of intellectual property. Um, we have our technology is so off the wall and so different and out of the box that there was no IP. We were basically we are the state of the art now in, yeah. in, in our IP, um, which made it very nice on the IP front because we have a clear IP. Very difficult on the development side because there's no basic science. Um, so we had to create a lot of the basic science. But sticking to the IP question, my my fundamental approach has always been to be very aggressive on IP. And what does it being aggressive mean? Uh, in today's marketplace, you need to not only patent your idea, you need to patent around it. You basically create a landmine or a mine field mm -hmm. to make sure that not only people can't copy your patent, but they can't copy anything that's similar to it. Yeah. So you, you, we, we, we spend about $250,000, $300,000 a year on IP, and we're not even at the, at the challenging side of it. We, yeah. we have three to four new patents written every year, and today we maintain about uh, 17 different inventions that are filed in 70, in 70 different filings. So uh, my, my strategy has always been, yeah, patent and patent and patent and patent. And, you know, the issue of how much do you have time to exploit that patent is is always a challenging one, especially in the medical, in the farm, in the pharma world, you actually have all kinds of grace periods. So you're, you're given add-ons. In mm. medical devices, you're not. Mm. So the challenge that we've had in medical devices is to, to get that core patent that we received already and then all the future designs get patented again and again and again and make sure that we, we do the strategy of executing on those designs as soon as possible. Yeah. But uh, um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, IP is money well worth, well spent mm -hmm. and, and necessary because you will be copied yeah. and you will be, yeah. you'll be challenged because no successful technology gets to market without having someone thinking they can do the same thing. So spend your money wisely. Uh, um, try and do it with... with uh, with smaller groups, but capable groups. Don't go to the big patent houses because you spend your money on nothing. Um, but once you've fundamentally proven your technology worthy of being patented and you have your basic IP, which you can do fairly inexpensively, make sure you get the right people to advise you how to go ahead about that. All right, Gal, thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, my name is Joe Batista, and I'm the director and chief creatologist at HP Hewlett Packard. Now, um, Joe, here at the, uh, this, this Eco the Economist Innovation Summit, has the, by far and away the best job title. Let's begin, Joe, by just finding out what is a chief creatologist. <laughs> Actually, it's a, it's a great brand. In, in 1996, I worked for an executive vice president, and he kept coming up with the idea of, hey, that's a very creative approach. Uh, that's an interesting idea. Uh, that, that's definitely out of the box. So he goes, why, why don't we just call you the creatologist? So I paused for a moment. I'm thinking, well, well how many creatologists do we have? He goes, only one. I go, well, I should be the chief creatologist. And, and ever since 1996, that monkey has just kind of set in, and it's become its own little brand in a sort yeah. of respect. It's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. But I, I think everyone's really a creatologist, but I just happen to have the title. Cool. Now, the, the other thing which is, which is quite clear is that you are always looking for connections. You're almost kind of like this sort of amazing um, synapse, as it were, you and your team within HP, looking for ways to develop innovation from existing HP products right. um, and making new connections, making creating new possibilities. Right. How, how do you go about developing those new connections? Yeah, well, it, 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 I don't think it's an exact science. I, I will put my finger on a couple of key inflection points. One is just a general curiosity right, about how things work, how to connect. I think the second big, um, it, it's just a passion. You need a passion to, to 
to make things successful, to create something new, to create new value. So I think between curiosity and passion, I, I think the, the third thing is, is just an approach. And, I, and this is what I was trying to get to at the, uh, the conference here in London is take a look at your company and the ecosystem that your company operates in and dismantle it. I mean, just dismantle everything that you do. Think about research. Think about IP. Think about the knowledge in there. Think about business processes. Think about uh, who you touch, your market position, your brand, what the experiences look like. And you'll be amazed at this concept called all the assets that you have. Once you get this inventory of assets, then you can kind of begin to figure out, well, how can I unleash that value against an adjunct market, an adjunct customer? or create something totally new by taking the corresponding customer's DNA, marrying your DNA to create something. So I think the curiosity, the passion, we have a lot of fun at it, but I think the approach is this whole concept of decomposing everything to its fundamental elements, and then, like Legos, and kind of reassembling them again differently. You're a corporate deconstructionist. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> corporate deconstructionist, yeah, that's probably a good way. Not as good as chief creatologist, no, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, cool. But in terms of once you've once you've sort of uh, discovered what your business is really about or its real potential by taking it apart and looking at various aspects, the next step is then imagining the possibility of what you could do do with that, isn't it? There's a certain amount of uh, leap of faith or stretch of the imagination or thinking. You know, there's the cliche about thinking out of, out of the box, but it's right. that it's that kind of next step in terms of thinking. Um, you know, out from from outside the confines of your own business, right. as it were. How how do you how do you yeah. try and get that to work? I, I don't think there's an exact science yeah. here. I think there are, are two major um, energy sources for it. The first one is when you do have a good understanding of your assets, the ability to just just step outside, go to the beach, and think about how those assets might be used in something radically different. Now, and I use the example here of microfluidics, which is really the science of paper and ink and the, in, 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 the, in the print cartridge, and how that microfluidics technology could be used potentially for, you know, diagnostics and, um, you know, strips for that, that, that collect blood to understand what your, you know, your blood glucose is. Or in the case of uh, microfluidics with our printers, we, we've taken our microneedle technology and sold that to a company in Ireland that will create new patches that you put on your skin that will penetrate the upper epidermal to, of your skin to release um, pharmaceuticals. So you, you, need to, you need to first get the inventory and then kind of think about where these other things happen. And I think the second major energy source is sometimes customers, consumers, suppliers come to you and say, I've got this business problem. Can, can you help me? So it, their energy source comes from two ways. But the, the, key, the, the key to sparking it is to really have a nice, big, open view of the world and then when you decompose it try to make some connection points at least to guide the ship on the right course where you can get the class of smart people to come in who understand microfluidics to talk with the diagnostics folks to say hey does this make sense yeah because the biggest challenge of course is is combining innovation with with real business um and and creating you know value for the business value for customers value for you know partners are you the kind of uh, are you the kind of uh, intermediary who 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 helps 
make that happen, or, or how, how do you how do you work as a team to create? You know, you have the the researchers, you have the kind of the guy like you who's out there looking for the opportunity, but then someone's got to implement it, haven't they? Right. They've got to get down and dirty right. on the kind of the business and and how are we going to make this make right. this work? So so um, it's not an event; it's a journey. Yeah. Okay. And in the journey, <clears throat> the immediate exercise that I go through, and again, I I didn't show any examples here, is to develop a set of assumptions in an economic model, okay, on does the technology, the idea, the asset in the new state, what's the impact? What's the value created, right? And if you look at the discipline of market leaders, right, does it save you money, operational excellence? Does it create money, make, you know, additional revenue or enhance the customer experience, customer intimacy? Do you create a whole new product or service? Or I've added the southern axis, which is a relationship. Does it enhance the relationship somehow? Mm. So when you begin to say, oh, I see how this asset of microfluidics could help me reduce the cost of manufacturing my strips. And if I'm probably right 50% of it, I could probably save the company money. So I think it might be well worth the investigation in the initial funding to go get this project done. So I think the very first exercise is once you have the asset and you marry it up with what value you're going to create it is try to model it. You're not mm. going to be 100% accurate, mm. but you're going to get a ballpark idea that says, well, this is only a $100,000 kind of impact. Oh, this is an $85 million impact. And now once you get that done, now it becomes getting through the culture. Is the culture a receiving culture? What's my capacity to fail? Do I have the right resources in place? Do I have the right funding? So there's, there's a line of, of things that I think think about on that journey. But the first thing is asset, marrying the asset, understanding the value, modeling it. Whoa, big, big impact. Then I go through the rest of the exercise. What, what you've just described there, and which just occurred to me, bearing in mind that our audience is a kind of startup and entrepreneurial, is that every idea is a startup. Perfect. I, I, that, that's bloody brilliant. That's absolutely correct. Every idea is a startup, exactly. And it's kind of what you're doing within a big corporation, which is exciting, and kind of what everyone else who who aren't HP now, but maybe in ten years' time, is trying to achieve. So I think that's that's been a useful and interesting conversation, Joe. Thank you ever so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So I'm Kamal Singh. I uh, live in Bangalore, India. And I am one of the three partners in a venture capital firm called Helion Ventures. Uh, we invest in the Indian market in basically technology and consumer businesses and typically look at uh, young companies, either pure startups or in early stage of their evolution. Now, um, what does innovation look like in India today? I mean, you, one of the skills, I guess, of a, of a traditional VC is that you are looking for something that is, in essence, innovative, but he's also got a, a business uh, potential. Um, so what, what does innovation look like to you in India today? Um, I think there is a certain uh, unique uh, timing and uh, environment in India today which defines innovation a little differently from what traditionally is known as innovation in the way of new products, new technologies, and very intellectual property-based uh, innovation. In India, we are finding that there's a lot of opportunity uh, in just catering to the growing economy. So a lot of businesses getting built around newer services, newer value propositions. 
and uh, for example uh, i was talking about a company starting a chain of beauty salons now this may not be seen as an innovation in itself but if you see that there is a big demand for this kind of a service and if you can build a scalable institutional business around it then to me that's a business model innovation may not be a ip kind of an innovation mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, there is also a lot of work going on in the large development centers in India, where uh, companies like Intel, Google, Yahoo, and all are you know hundreds of thousands of uh, people in India working on core technology innovation, and that is also translating into a lot of spin-outs, a lot of people leaving their jobs and starting companies which are in the high-tech innovation space. But I would say that uh, I am most optimistic about a lot of these new service models, new business models that are uh, trying to address the opportunity in India, particularly, you know, in areas like retail, education, financial services, healthcare, and as an economy, uh, even though we are projecting lower numbers, but even if we are growing at five to seven percent, it's mm. still a very healthy rate of growth to you know deliver new products and services. Yeah, absolutely. So, to a certain extent, the innovation is actually in the the, the attitude um, to business opportunities of the people in India, of the population, as it were. And that's a great way to put it. Uh, it's the it's in thinking of new new ways of delivering value. and then working backwards now it could be a new product it could be a new service it could be a new business process of doing something similar one of my uh, favorite examples is a company called shaadi.com now shaadi in indian language in hindi means uh, marriage and while we have seen globally lots of social networking and dating and matchmaking sites this is actually a website uh, which focuses on helping parents find grooms and brides for their uh, eligible children yeah. so you have a rel- relatively older audience and parents who don't understand internet but they are still using this as a service interestingly this is not a dot com business because this company has over 150 physical stores in over 80 cities in india hmm. where you can come and register yourself where you can come and meet the prospective bride and groom because you know once you have identified somebody yeah. where where do you meet them yeah, yeah, so yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the arranged yeah. marriage concept in india yeah. and believe me they have 10 million uh, registered users today and they have helped 800000 you know matches to get fixed yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. so that is a classic example of innovation which is not so much technology but a need in the market where you are able to bring you know a lot of factors together and build a new business and i think and it was touched upon in a, the earlier d- uh, debate th- uh, that you were involved with on the panel it, that is a that, that is taking a concept and giving it the 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 cultural relevance um and that that's where the innovation is happening and and that's true and i can take you know multiple examples of the yeah. same uh, one of the things that i personally was involved in many years ago was uh, when i was with uh, hindustan lever which is a unilever company was the launch of uh, sachets which are the little pouches of shampoo mm. uh, now what happened is that uh, we were always selling you know shampoo in bottles and there was a certain market that we were addressing because even a smallest bottle of shampoo of 50 ml would cost let's say about you know 50 cents or something like that which is still not affordable mm. and the innovation here was that very clearly the 
rural or the uh, lower income uh, audience is not going to change their ha- habits and start using shampoos on a everyday basis but it's an indulgence which they want to do once in a while mm-hmm. so they're not going to shell out a 15 or a 20 rupees for a bottle of shampoo and then use it over 6 months because they're going to use it you know maybe twice a month but if you can give them a small dosage in a little plastic pouch they can actually start saying okay on a sunday i want to go and see a movie i will use a shampoo now again very interesting as an innovation in which is more a packaging innovation and a business model innovation and so much so that it became so popular in india that uh, it was taken to a lot of other emerging markets out of india so that's another example of uh, you know mm, adapting yeah, yourself to the local market requirements and uh, you know building a business out of it now um vcs we were <laughs> around the globe uh, currently uh, are kind of facing um rough times like startups in terms of the kind of amount of capital that is available to them how um are you guys at helion fe- feeling about just about the the startup market in india now in terms of the availability of capital in terms of your own attitudes to uh the types of business you're willing to invest now as perhaps compared to 12 months ago absolutely there is a certain sense of caution and certain sense of uncertainty which is affecting all our behaviors but as i mentioned in the panel earlier uh, it's not a doom and gloom situation it's about being more uh, you know fundamentally more diligent about it being uh, very uh, almost like uh, you know very much uh, you know, focused on the right decision factors not to say that we were uh, you know frivolous or we were doing things uh, with uh, less caution but clearly uh, the need now is to make sure that even if we invest in a startup business the business can stand on its own legs mm-hmm. at a point of time that the need for next round of capital is well understood in the current environment so clearly our first focus is look at business models which are not very high gestation Yeah so yeah. in many cases you know when you're saying okay for 3 years this business will not make money but it will require more capital and we will you know that is a typical venture capital way of looking at investing yeah yeah in india that was not necessarily the only model because uh, as i mentioned earlier we invest in services firms mm-hmm. and services businesses tend to generate revenue much faster yeah yeah so yeah. they can you know get cash flow positive or at least start reducing their burn much faster yeah. so that's the advantage that i see in india today that we are seeing a lot of business models which have 12 months 18 months kind of uh, you know Uh, at least revenue visibility yeah, 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 and then yeah, the you know yeah. profit and cash visibility so we will continue to invest uh, threshold for investing is going to be uh, with a lot of these questions answered how long will it take for a business to build scale what yeah. kind of revenues are we projecting in the current environment yeah. but on the other hand this could also be a great time to invest mm. because you are getting very good uh, you know value in terms of the deals that you are seeing you are getting very high quality entrepreneurs who are willing to come and work with you because you know they really like to now work with vcs who can see a longer term horizon who can add value to the business building process so for people like us who come from operating and business backgrounds mm. who have always uh, believed that our business was not only about providing money but also about helping them with the business building process i think this could actually turn out to be a good time for us on that positive note thank you very much my pleasure thanks alex so there you go terrific interviews 
I really enjoyed them and I'm sure you will have done too. And uh, thanks to all of those three guys for taking the time out at that conference to talk to me. So let's now go straight to uh, another listener book review. If you would like to review a book on business, uh, we tend to get quite a few coming in at Small Biz Pod. I don't get a chance to read them all, let alone to review them all. So if you fancy doing that, all you've got to do is drop me an email, alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. I will send you a book and in return, you all you have to do is send me a three, four minute audio review of that book. And that's exactly what John Peden has done. So let's listen to John's review of Marketing on a Beer Mat by Chris West. Marketing on a Beer Mat, a review by John Peden. I received Marketing on a Beer Mat by Chris West, courtesy of Alex Bellinger of Small Biz Pod, in return for this audio review. My name is John Peden. I am a 21-year-old engineering undergraduate at the University of Sheffield and have just launched my first large-scale venture, www.letsmove.in, the UK property map. Though I consider myself a novice, I have been working on a number of ventures over the past few years and have learned a great deal experientially. I approached marketing on a beer mat, aware of the beer mat entrepreneur, but not having read it. At the time, I was keen to promote a blog I was writing on, and thought that my understanding of marketing left a lot to be desired. West writes with an eloquence and rhythm that is easy and enjoyable to read. The book is written for those who don't do marketing, or believe that they do not understand what marketing is. In the concise opening chapter, West introduces the layman to marketing, and makes clear that it is something businesses must do to survive. His understanding of marketing is interlaced with the likes of accepted theory, Kotler's product, place, price, promotion, and historical examples of marketeers, P.T. Barnum. The chapter ends, as do all others, with a one-page summary, a nice addition that allows the reader to quickly refresh themselves on the information covered. Chapter 2 introduces case studies of five unique business models, which are referred to throughout the remainder of the book. This was an inspired move by West, as it allows the reader to instantly empathise with the fictional business owners and to develop their own bespoke marketing strategy. The next chapter encourages the reader to develop an elevator pitch. The summary uses one of the aforementioned business models, in this case a web design agency, and asks the following questions. What problem do they solve? Who do they solve it for? How do they solve it? What makes them unique? and what makes them credible. West moves on to deal with market research in the next chapter, highlighting that some readers will be starting with a clean slate while others might have a good understanding of their target market. West considers a varied approach to research and suggests a few data gathering methods that could easily be overlooked. He then moves on to look at products, how a product should be priced, the product range, after sales service, guarantees, and considering what else the customer might want. He then asks the reader to think about how they will inform the target market of their solution and considers a basic communications kit. He highlights that the point is not to draw unnecessary attention to the business, but to draw significant attention from the right people, that is, people who will pay for the product. The reader is asked to consider the route to market for which West makes further diverse suggestions and then asked to construct a basic business plan. 
In the closing chapters, West considers marketing tools that can be used by business to make some noise, e.g. stunts at a product launch. He also looks at informal marketing solutions like networking, and finally online marketing like social media and PPC marketing, which, if done right, is a highly cost-effective way for startups to get moving. I read Marketing on a Beer Mat wanting to apply its lessons to a blog. With that goal in mind, it made for an enjoyable read, and I particularly liked the end of chapter summaries. Furthermore, the case studies of fictional but believable business models make it easy for the reader to apply West's teachings to their business and to develop their own marketing toolkit. The book considers marketing from its most basic definition and helps the reader to understand marketing from conception through to product delivery. The author's approach to marketing is one of diversification. There is no one perfect solution to the problem. In being so diverse, the information given is quite general, so don't expect any secret formulae. West simply offers a no-nonsense array of marketing tools for the reader to test with their business. Since reading Marketing on a Beer Mat, I have launched my own business. I'll definitely be reading it again to gleam as much information as possible from its pages, which I expect to be more relevant to a business than a blog. The book is priced at £8.99 and manages to cram an awful lot into its 200 pages. It's probably not a great deal of use to experienced marketeers, but for the rest of us, this book could go a long way in making your startup a success. John Peden, Sheffield, United Kingdom, 2008. Thanks, John. Another superb book review. So that's superb. Thanks ever so much. And do check out uh, John's new site. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. If you want to review a book, email me at alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or you'd like to read some of the features on the site or the small business news elements, uh, then you can comment on those too. Uh, just uh, click on the comments section at the, the bottom of each post. So that's nice and easy to do. Uh, and we're going to be introducing a new section of the site as well, which for those of you who'd like to contribute, uh, give you more opportunity to do so. So that's all very cool. Ed Stivala did contribute. He commented on a blog post on the pre-budget report that I wrote uh, a week or so ago. And yeah, he simply says, uh, I hadn't realised about income shifting and why has it been postponed? What is it? Well, uh, in brief the Customs and Revenue in the UK wanted to stop married couples who had um, split shares in a, in a company uh, and also split the, the resulting dividends from being able to take full advantage of, of each of their own tax allowances, i.e. the tax allowances of both partners. Now, uh, as you can probably tell, I'm no, no super expert on uh, tax, but in essence, that was the that was the issue. Married couples, it's called income shifting, married couples with uh, joint shares within a company and dividends as a result, taking advantage of the tax advantages of, of you know, their, their reach, their, their, their own tax allowances, as it were. So I will put a link in the show notes for those of you interested in that. In any case, that whole issue has been postponed at least for a year uh, in the light of the economic turmoil and the government's efforts to do all it, all it can to support small businesses at this time. Okay, so that just brings me to the music for this week, which comes from an artist called Anami. The track's called I Saw You First, 
with many thanks, as always, to Iota Promonet for letting us play it. We'll be right back. 